When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reality Radio for a really great future. We're talking real money. Oh my gosh, it's video cast and podcast time and both Tom and I are really excited about this one because we're doing something we don't do very often. We're going to interview somebody. We don't do it very often because we don't think most people are worthy of being interviewed. They're more than likely just going to confuse you. However, not too long ago, Tom read a book. I know. No, Tom reads books all the time. He just doesn't read on a computer. Uh, he's, he's actually a voracious reader. He read a book, uh, and I finally read it. And wow, we both really loved it. The book is called Trillions. And this book is a, a history of how investing has changed over the past, really the past century or so. And the author of the book is a gentleman who writes for the Financial Times of London, which you cannot say without a bit of a British accent. His <laughs> name is Robin Wigglesworth, and he joins us actually from Oslo, Norway. Wow. Hi, Robin. Hi, guys. How are you all? I'm, I'm glad I've been found worthy. So uh, <laughs> I'm off of my cap to you both. No, I'm not honestly, worthy, Lord. Is I, I used to have to read a financial book every week when I had a television show, most of which I absolutely hated. But your book I absolutely love because it's not just numbers and all the rest of it. It's about people, which most people in the financial world don't write about people. They think it's about anyway. So it's a great book, great read. Anyone who's an investor really should read this book because it tells you where we are today and how we got here. That's the thing I really loved. But I think the most fascinating part for most people, Robin, will be these dramatic changes we've seen in the last 10 years. It's staggering, really, because with the exchange-traded funds now, which as investors know, have tremendous advantages uh, in many, many ways. But the numbers, thankfully, Morningstar just came out with this. As of November 24th, they say a record 406 new exchange-traded funds were launched in 2021. That's much higher than last year's 319. But here's where it gets interesting. According to them, since 1993, 3,751 ETFs have been brought to market. 28% of them, almost a third of them, are gone. So my question to you is, okay, 400 new ETFs, are these things that we need? Are these things that are good for the people selling them? Uh, I think quite a lot of them are primarily good for the people selling them, which you know is pretty much par for the course for the finance industry and really, let's face it, a lot of parts of business. Uh, some of them will survive, but I think we are very much at the throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks phase of index fund innovation. Well, you know, it's funny. I, what, when I started your book, I went, this is a book about the sudden spike of brilliance among academia. And then later it went from like being a book about brilliance to being a book about billions. It was all about big money. What is it, though, that you think, after looking way back at the beginning of the mutual fund industry back in the 20s, what was it that took so long for academia and, and, and the industry to realize that indexing actually made sense? 
So there were many things that sort of held back the development of indexing, and some of it is just human nature. You know, for a lot of people, the idea that you can do well by just being lazy and buying the market average was just bizarre. Uh, you know, quite a lot of the early pioneers were attacked with this. They were said, who wants to be or operated on by mediocre surgeon? Who wants to be average, right? Everybody wants to be the best. And I think, and especially in the US, where, you know, striving to be the best is so ingrained in the national character, it was very difficult to sell. But also, information just traveled really slowly back in the day. This is the pre-internet days, right? So even when academics were first able to collect through painstaking work, all the data they needed, and then crunch that data with these massive mainframe computers were starting to sort of come on board at the time, it still took years for that academic research to filter into only a few corners of the investment industry. Because let's face it, most humans are pretty good at ignoring inconvenient information. And this was very inconvenient information for the vast majority of the investment industry. And, and it may be still for today. We'll ask you more about that in a minute. We're talking with Robin Wigglesworth. He is the uh, author of the wonderful book, The Must Read for Any Index Investor or any investor. Yeah, called no. Trillions. Make that any investor because yeah, really you know, should be. there's still a lot of people we know, know, know who don't believe in it. They still think they can buy AT&T and get that big dividend. And or they, whatever it might be. Make a mistake. So in, in your research, what percentage now of the global stock market investing is done through index funds and what percentage is done by actively managed funds in your mind, your research? Yeah, so using the Morningstar data as well, and I've cobbled it together with the Investment Company Institute's data as well for global markets, you get to around $17 trillion is in index funds, either sort of plain vanilla index mutual funds or exchange-traded funds. But even this understates the true size of passive investing, if you use that as the term for the whole caboodle, because there are a lot of big pension plans and sovereign wealth funds and even you know, private banks in Geneva and Zurich that do this in-house. They don't need to pay a Vanguard or BlackRock to manage what is now a super simple plain vanilla product. So by reverse engineering a few data points that I have and with a few assumptions around the similar growth rate on the private side to the public side, then you get a figure of $26 trillion. And that is conservative. Uh, is now just tracking some sort of financial index, whether it's the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or the Nikkei or FTSE or whatever. Uh, and that is... You know, it, you can slice and dice the size of the capital markets in many different ways, unfortunately. But that is still a very small part of global markets, but it's growing very, very quickly. In fact, growing quicker than any other part of the industry. Why, and this is a question people ask us to this day, why does passive investing work? Well, there are two schools of thought behind that. Uh, one of which is made mostly famous by Gene Farmer, the Nobel Prize winning economist that I wrote a lot about in my book, and his efficient markets theory. So he argues that the markets are these, it's a fantastic machine that constantly bakes in all relevant and irrelevant information all the time. It's the sum of the wisdom of millions of people. 
And in practice, that is just very, very hard to beat. Because although humans go mad individually and in masses, we see bubbles bursting all the time, right? In practice, it's very hard to know ahead of time what is a real bubble, when to get out of it, and so on. Then there's just the fact that you know, for everybody who beats the market, somebody has to underperform it. It's just a mathematical truth. And given the cost of active management, you have to pay the portfolio manager, the traders, their accountants, their analysts. You know, these people want decent salaries and bonuses. The cost of trading has dropped, but it's still a headwind for active managers. The more you trade, the more costs you incur that way. So on average, the average investor in an active fund is going to do worse than the market average because of these costs. So it just means that actually for the vast majority of investors, if you don't think you can pick a hotshot mutual fund manager who's going to sustainably beat the market for 10 years in a row, and sadly there are very, very few of them, uh, you're better off investing as cheaply as possible in a broad, diversified group of financial securities. It's just the, the cost matters hypothesis, as Jack Bogle called it. It is astounding the cost today, by the way. I think our portfolio averages, you know, like one tenth of, of uh, it, it, I always forget, 0.1. I mean, it's just cheap, cheap, cheap. But I got to ask you because the last year has been an unusual time. We have all these people that were staying at home. They're either working from home, they were getting checks from the government, millennials, Gen Z, whatever. And they started trading stocks, right? They were doing meme stocks and they were doing all the stuff. Is there any indication that that's a one-time event or is this a generational shift where younger people are saying, aha, I can trade Hertz and make get myself rich, don't need index funds? It's a great question and one I've been wrestling with a lot for the past year and a half and especially in 2021 because I, I cover global finance for the FT and this is by far one of the biggest phenomenons that's come up recently. And the answer to fudge it a little bit is, is yes and no. Yes, this is a phase and we've seen many similar phases throughout history. Uh, the dot-com bubble most recently and most famously, uh, but also, for example, the, the go-go era in the 1960s that you know, it was the first dot-com bubble in many ways, but it wasn't Amazon or Oracle or Cisco. It was IBM and Xerox and Kodak. Uh, and you know, through history, there's just tons of bubbles, and they always draw in people because, let's face it, we are, at our hearts, sadly quite greedy and we hate seeing our neighbor do better than us. So we get suckered in and it starts feeding on itself and it takes off until, you know, all hell breaks loose and people lose an ungodly amount of money. So I think that will end. But one of the things I'm becoming more convinced about is that this boom, this retail trading boom is different and will probably stay more durable for longer than past booms, and will still, once it washes out, fall back to a higher level of retail engagement than we saw in the past because of many things. In the dot-com bubble, trading was still expensive. You still had to pay, what, eight bucks to place a trade? Today, you can, and on a dial-up modem from your computer, now you can literally sit on the toilet and trade on your mobile phone. 
Tom does that free. daily. Is that, does that say something about the quality of the trade, the <laughs> crap or something in there? I don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> well, only if it's a value trade, I think, recently. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, now, that, that that's an interesting point because it, it is does that tie in in part with did indexes follow the retail investor because in the early days of investing back in in the 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 19th century the early 20th century there was almost no retail investing individuals weren't involved as they became more involved did the product evolve to fit the marketplace I think they always feed on themselves, right? Markets are fantastically adaptable, complex systems. Uh, So it's hard to disentangle the factors from each other. I think there there was a lot of retail involvement in ordinary stock markets from their inception in the Netherlands centuries ago. It's just what we maybe call retail has evolved. So famously, Isaac Newton lost his fortune in the South Sea bubble. Now, was he an ordinary retail investor? Well, he was, but he was also the Lord Chancellor of the Mint in the UK and already a famous scientist at the time. But he went almost bankrupt from from the South Sea bubble. Uh, And more recently, we can still see that households in America still own way more of the US stock market than mutual funds or hedge funds do, or certainly index funds. Now, some of that is Jeff Bezos and, and, and Bill Gates. Some of, a lot of it is ordinary people that maybe bought a few hundred shares or a few thousand shares of, of IBM back in the day and left them to their grandkids. You so, raise an interesting point. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you raise an interesting point. You mentioned your home country. Why do you think international, I mean, U.S. investors pretty clearly have, a, a, the majority of them are in the process, I think, of accepting index funds. Why has it been slower outside of the United States? In a word, distribution. So the US had a hard time of getting acceptance, but once the the benefits of the idea become abundant, a lot of financial advisors, which is sort of the interface between Wall Street and Main Street, have embraced this with gusto. Not all of them, but you know, the data is pretty irrefutable. And a lot of pension plans are heavily indexed and passive these days. So it starts feeding on itself. Uh, I think people like Dimensional Fund Advisors has done God's work in popularizing the ideas of efficient markets so that even if you don't believe that markets are efficient, at least you are aware of the arguments in favor of indexing. And many financial advisors have gone through their training camps over the years and similar ones hosted by academics. Guilty. Exactly, right? (laughs) Um, There are many of us out there. But I think in Europe, it's just very bank-dominated. Distribution of investment products is overwhelmingly through the banking channel, which just makes it far harder because it's very tempting for a bank to stuff their customers full of their own active uh, funds, generally speaking. It's quite telling that on the institutional side, I'm pretty certain that the average European uh, pension plan is more passive than the average US pension plan. But on the retail side, it's radically different. And it is sad. And I don't think it probably will probably will change to a meaningful degree until either there is draconian regulation on what banks can sell to their own clients or a meaningful change in where people find their investment products and how they do it. Now, you have painted a great picture in your book of this this 
linear change in the investment industry from we started with just individual stocks and then we got into unit investment trusts and closed in funds and open in funds and then we got we got the index fund from Wells Fargo and then popularized by Jack Bogle at Vanguard following that and you tell the story by the way of ETFs wonderfully i just want to throw that in, in as an aside your warehouse analogy mm-hmm. is the best ETF analogy cuz ETFs are hard to understand <laughs> And the fact that you got a warehouse full of stocks mm-hmm. and you put some in or you take some out, that that's worth the book right there. But so we've gone from all of these things to ETFs, exchange traded funds, of which, as Tom mentioned earlier, there are way too many. Is there any other innovation on the horizon that might be better? Or have we just reached another step in the process and we're going to wait, have to wait a while to see what might happen in the future? Well, it's a big question. Um, I, I, you know, I wouldn't hazard a guess on something completely new, but you know, there are two things that people are getting quite excited about at the moment, and one which I'm sure you guys are very aware of is direct indexing, or custom indexing. A lot of people think this is indexing 3.0, where the traditional plain vanilla mutual fund index mutual funds was the first version, then ETFs was the second, and this is the third wave. I think that the future of direct indexing is glowing, but I don't think it's quite as radical uh, as many people think. Because let's say the advantages of direct indexing is that you take a bundle of, let's say, the S&P 500, and you can customize that index according to your own personal preferences. Let's say uh, American Airlines bumped you from a flight and you you harbor a grudge like nobody's business. So you don't want to have an American Airlines in your portfolio. Maybe you work at Google and you don't want to double your economic exposure because, you know, if Google does badly, you might get sacked and then the stock will also go down. So you want everything in the S&P minus Google. So I think this makes perfect sense. And because you can also tailor maybe for ethical concerns that you have. Um, I think the downsides is that for most people, sadly, finance is a recondite, difficult area to deal with. In the same reason that when something goes bad with the wiring in my house, I don't dare rip up the walls and try and fixing it myself. I think the vast majority of people just want simplicity, and certainly in this area. And direct indexing, how many people really want to sit around and fiddle with their portfolio or have to do rebalancing? I can see there's a really powerful tool for a lot of financial advisors that can do this. But even then, I think this is a trillion dollar idea or trillion dollar industry, not a multi-trillion dollar industry like the plain vanilla indexing. And And do you include, go go ahead, second one. Oh, the second one is active ETFs. But the idea that you use ETFs, not just as a passive vehicle, but something you use this warehouse, as Nate Most called it, and I call it using the metaphor I use in my book, for something far grander. I think that is something that we're also seeing the contour of of now. The ETF transcending its genesis as a passive index tracker and becoming something far greater, but potentially also maybe a little bit more dangerous. And do you include uh, separate managed accounts in direct indexing? Is that part of the same... I okay. do. I see direct indexing yeah. is the, sort of the the low end retail side of that. But the idea that you can customize and personalize an investment product for anything from a $50 billion pension plan to somebody with $5,000 
in an investment account. But doesn't direct indexing have to be more expensive than a nice, dirt-cheap index ETF? It certainly is now. And it also, you need a high minimum to go to most of these direct indexes at the moment. But technology is a wonderful equalizer. And the solutions to this, you know, because of fractional share trading, because of free or close to free trading now, it it suddenly has opened up far more possibilities to do this in a relatively cost-efficient way. But I think you have to be pretty motivated to do so. And it will probably always cost more than a cheap, well-diversified, broad, boring index fund, the price of which is close to zero and almost certainly going to zero for a lot of big asset managers over the next decade or two. And, you know, I don't like them because I feel like they bring in your personal buy. I mean, you mentioned American (laughs) Airlines. I got to think about British Airways. They left me in London two nights one time, which I didn't like either. But I mean, they're not in the S&P 500. So you're good. (laughs) But they are in the global market index, I'm sure. I just just, might be too small these days to be in the global market averages. (laughs) It's hard to Um, know. No, but I mean, sir, okay, but let's again talk big picture here because I think the book does a wonderful job of framing kind of, again, all the things in the past. I, I love the stories about Jack Bogle, which I hadn't read, Gene Fama, somebody that we've actually had the opportunity to talk to numerous times, Dimensional, Vanguard, all these things. But are we headed to a place, and I think you raised this question a bit in the book, because the one criticism we get of index funds is they're going to... They're going to do bad things to capitalism. People aren't going to care. I, if I run Ford, what do I care how it all works out? Because Rivian's public now. I'm not going to compete with them. And everybody's going to own me anyway because market cap's so big. They got to own me. So my stock price is going to be okay. Do you buy into that? Or is that a, another way to say, you know, uh, index funds are un-American or whatever used they used to, the phrases they used to use 50 years ago? Well, it is another way of, 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 of attacking a undercutting competitive. I mean, let's face it, the investment industry and Wall Street in general, you know, I think some of the smartest, most wonderful people I've met in my life work in finance. But as an industry, it does not like transparency and low costs, right? It's antithetical to Wall Street in many respects. And the index fund at its core is transparent, simple and cheap. So quite naturally, there are going to be a lot of attacks aimed at it. And many of the attacks I see today have not just uncanny parallels to exactly the same attacks that indexing faced in the 70s when it was born, but frankly, the same attacks that were leveled against mutual funds 100 years ago. You'd be shocked at how similar the the language is. That said, I think it is important even for people like me who are fans of indexing, and it's the only financial advice I ever feel competent to give that most people should just do this and forget about it. Even fans need to not be willfully blind to potential side effects from indexing, the growth of passive investing. Because the way I see it, the way I try to structure the book is index funds, is, it was like a new technology, a new profoundly disruptive technology that the incumbents hated. The incumbents were horse breeders when the car came around, the in- internal combustion engine was invented, or the internal, you know, the car incumbents, the automobile incumbents when the electric car comes. And even positive technologies can have negative externalities. And we humans are great at taking wonderful innovation and overdoing things, right? Facebook. I was going there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, God, beer, like, who doesn't love beer? Well, I guess some people don't, but no. you shouldn't have too much of it. Right. We cool ours down a little bit from where you like it, but that's okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's good Oh, he's know. in Norway. Oh, oh I'm Norway. in Norway. Everything, colder every, everything's cold Everything's here. colder in Norway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but so I, I think the arguments, there are, broadly speaking, there are four main lines of arguments that I all deal with in the book, because I think it's important to do so. And I think have varying degrees of, of, of um, value and importance and I guess also internal logic. Some of them I feel are a pretty poor weak source. Uh, the one of which is Jack Bogle's um, concern that we touched upon, that there's just too much innovation. There's too many city index funds and especially ETFs being churned out by an industry more interested in selling than is this something that is valuable to the client out there. My favorite stat, for example, is that you would have done better investing with Bernie Madoff than with a lot of the long volatility ETPs that are traded out there, which just are huge incinerators of investor capital. And yet the SEC <laughs> what a allows great people to trade. I mean, I'm going to borrow that incinerators of investment <laughs> yeah. capital. Yeah. No, mm. Look out how much. Check out the inflows into the long VIX exchange traded products, and you'd be astonished at how many billions have gone up in air mm. from investing in these products. And these are, let's face it, also fundamentally securities that retail investors would normally not be allowed to touch. VIX futures. Yeah. You wouldn't mm -hmm. be allowed to do that without being an accredited investor. But if you wrap it up in an ETF, then magically somehow the regulator says it's okay. And I think that is concerning. Uh, the second one is, you know, and this is one of my nerdier concerns, but, you know, index funds depend on indices. And the people that create these benchmarks have kind of more from bringing really dull utilities I mean, these were not sexy parts of, of, of the finance industry. They're being hugely influential. And how they construct these indices is incredibly important. So small tweaks of how big a weighting a country or a company gets can have massive impact. And there is some discretion involved in many of these indices. So I think how much power has been quietly concentrated in the hands of index providers themselves is something we probably need to keep an eye on. Um, and the third one is, you know, essentially that we are also pulling a hell of a lot of power in the hands of just a few index fund providers, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, um, primarily the big three, because the economics of indexing mean the big will become bigger. And at some point, should we worry about these big three controlling almost de facto a vast majority of listed companies in America and around the world? And the fourth one, which is clearly the one that the investment industry and the finance industry is most concerned about, is to what extent are index funds wrecking markets, destabilizing competition, um, making markets more prone to boom and bust? There are many facets to this. And the way I see it, top level, we can drill in down a little bit, is that the markets are like a jungle. And there's always new animals that come and go and die out. And if an animal becomes really big and successful, it inevitably impacts its environment around it. And indexing, and passive investing is so big, it is leaving an impact on its environment. And you can see that quite often on the smaller fringes of the markets, not the sexy fun stuff, but quite often weird things like index rebalancings and dividend stocks and big ETFs in those areas. Certain ETFs that have grown really big for what they initially were planning to do. 
But on the whole, from a top level, is the market's vibrancy and efficiency breaking down at all? I think that completely the opposite is happening. I think indexing is actually driving out the weaker and mediocre fund managers and amateur investors. And the people that remain and come in every year are generally speaking a little bit smarter, a little bit hungrier, a little bit more driven than the people that came before them. That is one of the reasons why, despite passive growing so big now, the theory was that the more market was passive, the more opportunities there would be for active managers and active managers would stage to come back. But in practice, we've actually seen the average performance of active managers atrophy fall as passive grows. And I think that is actually because the dumb money is getting driven out of the markets and the people that remain are usually the smartest people left standing. So and we've driven out the the what you called or what one of your uh, your interviewees called the have a hunch, buy a hunch, go to lunch bunch. Yes. I love that description. It's because that was the stock one. brokerage industry when I was in it. It was yes. the have a hunch, buy the hunch, now go to lunch. Sounds great for the stockbroker, less so for the client probably on average. Yeah. Uh, but I would have quite liked to have a job like that. <laughs> I, I did. I gave it up. Especially the lunch part. <laughs> I gave it up for less yeah. money, stupid me. <laughs> well, well, I've got one last question. I mean, what? this is a fascinating book for me because we're in this business. But – as somebody maybe not as in it as we we have because we're practitioners in many ways, what surprised you the most when you did the research for this book? That's an interesting question. Um, I would say that halfway through writing or really towards the end of the writing and the beginning of the editing process, we had a massive stress test of the financial system that made me changed my mind on a few areas. So March 2020 was a near cataclysm for the financial system. Uh, I think quite a lot of people still don't appreciate how close we came to not just having a global public health crisis and a global economic crisis, but having a financial crisis on top of it all. One that would have you know, even dwarfed the financial crisis. Uh, and luckily we didn't. And there were all sorts of things that happened that were suboptimal. But broadly speaking, uh, the ETF ecosystem, and especially the ETFs that deal with less liquid markets, I would have probably suspected would have had way more trouble than they actually had. So I've become more positive to ETFs. I, I used to be not quite a boglehead, but definitely shared his sort of almost instinctive... Um, concerns over something that trades intraday. And I fundamentally don't think that investors need much liquidity. I think we do way too harm, too much harm to ourselves by overtrading and overthinking things. So I think this is, you know, if I was dictated for the world of the financial world for a day, I'd probably say you can move money in and out of funds once a year and that's it. But ETFs the did better than I thought. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we know we do these things in this silly way, and yet we can't stop ourselves, right? Well, and Tom and I have that same, we've had that for years. For years, people have asked us, well, why do you stick with mutual funds when there are ETFs? Because we had that exact mm -hmm. same feeling about them. We wanted them to be ultimately stress tested. And that's interesting that you, uh, you believe that the March collapse, the March, <laughs> March mini crash was a stress test. 
Yes, I, I say this with fear that the markets are going to have an almighty vomit tomorrow and something horrible is going to happen to the ETF ecosystem and prove me an idiot. But I think the evidence so far is extremely strong. It's gone from strong to extremely strong that the ETF is actually a far more resilient structure than I and certainly a lot of the skeptics gave it credit for. And in some respects might actually be a better structure than the classic mutual fund for many very nerdy technical reasons. But for a lot of illiquid asset classes, it might actually be better and a safer thing for the financial system. And it's counterintuitive, but, um, but so far we can see that in how ETFs have certainly gained even more adoption and popularity even among big, sophisticated institutional investors since March 2020. And if you want to learn more about those nerdy reasons and be entertained in the process because mm -hmm. truly this book is a story. This is a narrative. This is not a technical piece. This is a great story and it's called Trillions. The book is called Trillions. Subtitle is how a band of Wall Street renegades invented the index fund and changed finance forever. And that is not hyperbolic. It is absolutely true, and we are witnesses to those changes over our very old, uh, long, lengthy, long lives. Lengthy, lengthy, lengthy term, lengthy. Uh, vast experience. Let's there say, you vast experience. So we, yes. we have wisdom coming out our ears, and yeah. uh, uh, our our guest. We're thrilled to have had uh, the opportunity to talk with Robin Wigglesworth, who is the author of the book and a uh, a writer for the Financial Times. Robin, thank you so much for spending some time with us this evening. No, thanks, Don. Thanks, Tom. Love we being on here. We right, greatly sir. appreciate it. Thanks so much. And thank you for being a part of Talking Real Money, the podcast and the video cast. I'm Don. That's Tom. We hang out all the time. Talking Real Money. Talking Real Money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. As you keep the lawyers happy.